Welcome to the Ready to Thrive podcast. My name is Jacqueline, and I don't know if you've ever felt like you are just surviving your life. I know I have, and that's why I created this space. I want to help you move from surviving to thriving. My goal is to help you get unstuck and actually enjoy your life. Each week, I'll be sharing practical tips and always point you to Jesus. So what are you waiting for? Let's get ready to thrive. Hello and welcome to Ready to Thrive. I'm so excited to be sitting here with my new friend, Kat Harris. I'm going to let Kat introduce herself because she'll do a way better job at that than I ever could. Hey, Jacqueline. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, and it's fun to get to see your face and get to know you a little bit better. I'm currently in Dallas, but I have lived in Brooklyn, New York for seven years now. I've been a full-time editorial photographer for over a decade and started an online platform for women called The Refined Woman almost 10 years ago now, I guess, as well. And that's shifted a lot over the years. It started as a style blog, and so if you want a good laugh, definitely go into the archives of my blog when I was trying to be a fashion blogger. Um, cause I'm just like, not that great. <laughs> um, but now over the years, what it has expanded into is a space to really equip and empower women to embrace their beauty and identity and value through storytelling. And I specifically talk a lot to single women about relationships and sexuality and how to step into more wholeness in their lives and identify fear that is just trying to keep us small and stuck and how to walk in more freedom. I have a podcast called The Refined Collective Podcast. And man, we talk about everything from what you weren't taught in health class about your period to the latest um, episode of the bachelorette to just anything and everything in between faith, love, life, all the things. So, um, yeah, those are, those are kind of my things. I love it. I feel like if you listen to your podcast or just follow you on Instagram, there is that sense of which you're like, I want to go sit down and like have a coffee with this girl, <laughs> get to know her. You're so fun. And what I love about you, Kat, is exactly what you just said, that you said, we're going to talk about everything in between. So you're like, yeah, we're going to talk about those things that are fun and, you know, just silly, but we're also going to get super deep. And so I think you are a wealth of knowledge <laughs> in a lot of areas. We're going to try and keep this short, so we're not going to cover everything. But the one thing I think you have learned over the years and you do a really good job of is creating boundaries in so many different areas of your mm -hmm. life. And so the first one I want to talk about is just this idea of work. You've worked from home yeah. for at least 10 years and you've learned, like you've talked about this idea of how working from home, we can either be really underproductive or really overproductive. And in some ways you have to create boundaries for both of those things. So can you just talk to us a little bit about what you've learned? What are a few things you could tell us about working from home? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm an extrovert and I thrive off being around other people. I love, I mean, it's one of the things I love about New York City is you walk outside, you're never alone. And man, I remember my first job out of college was working at this person's house by myself in this tiny little office all day. And I would 
leave feeling so ridiculously drained and exhausted. And I thought, man, how am I going to do this? And then I started my own business and there I was even more every day just with myself in my room. And yeah, I think what can happen is, especially in a time where we're at um, of quarantine, but really outside of it as well, when you're working from home. And I think also if you're an entrepreneur, your business is your baby, you know, and Mm. you're thinking about it all the time. And so especially when we're not really able to go hang out with other people right now, go to restaurants, movies, all the things. It's like, well, I might as well just keep working. Right. So if I can, it's like, if I can, I should. Mm -hmm. And I really think that that leads to burnout that might work for a day, a week, a month. It might even work for you for a couple of years. I worked 80 hour work weeks for almost a decade until my body literally shut down and was like, no, 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 we are not doing this. Um, And then I think on the flip side of that, we can be underproductive. So for me, what that would look like often would be, I would be working from home and be like, Oh, you know, instead of like going to the water jug or chatting with a coworker, I'm just going to throw in a load of laundry and I'm just going to scroll through some Instagram. And then pretty soon four hours have gone by and I've gone grocery shopping and I've cleaned under my bed and pretty much did everything but the one email I needed to send that day. Um, so I am a big fan of structure. I think structure feels like a four letter word to a lot of people, especially creatives. It's like, don't give me structure. Let me be a free bird. But really the artist is able to create once it has a canvas structure creates freedom. And so I am just a huge advocate of creating structure that allows you to thrive in your day-to-day life. So how have you learned then to not keep working for 80 hours? Because again, it's like, who's going to stop me? Like, I, I think a lot of people can relate to that where there is just that, I'm just going to send one more email. I'm just going to do one more sale or whatever it might be. So how have you learned to create those boundaries right. and not kind of overwork? Well, I learned by learning what didn't work. So after years of working these crazy hours, I was, I got burnt out physically, mentally, emotionally. I started having panic attacks like crazy. I was developing these insane food allergies. I had adrenal fatigue, autoimmune stuff. And it was because I was living as though I was a, I was a machine. I was a robot. And really underneath all of that came this fear of man, as an entrepreneur, if I ain't working, I ain't working. I don't have paid time off. No one's looking to book jobs for me. So I felt this intense pressure and I would never have said with my mouth that I felt as though I was the dictator of my future. I would have said, no, God, God is my provider, but it really felt like I was my provider and that if I wasn't working, like I wasn't going to get ahead. I wasn't going to be able to pay my rent. So I was really, really being driven by fear. And Mm. I am so grateful now, even though it was very, very hard and physically painful to experience the burnout and the anxiety attacks and the adrenal fatigue that still comes up. I'm working through adrenal fatigue again right now. Um, And I just realized that's not the life I want to live. That's not the life I want to have. And I think in the West, we create our lives around the core of work. 
So we are what we do as opposed to like who I am as a child of God. My work is a part of who I am. It's something that I do. And instead I, I kind of paused and dreamed up what's the life I want to live and how does work fit into that as opposed to right. life is my work and how does everything else revolve around that? And a, a, something that really helped me with that is when I started hiring my own team and realizing, first of all, it was totally inappropriate for me to be sending emails at midnight or 1am. And I had worked for a boss early on, on in my career that would text me at 2am and want me to do something. And it's like, we're not over here curing cancer here, people. (laughs) We're editing photos and writing blog posts. And so I realized what is the company culture I want to create for my team? I want them to be able to want to work for me for a long time. And yeah. And well, and I, okay, go ahead. (laughs) Well, I was just thinking what you're saying applies in every area of our life. Like as you're speaking, I'm like, this is so relatable to the stay at home mom Mm -hmm. who can feel like I have to keep going Mm -hmm. and have that fear of like, if I'm not constantly cleaning up after the kids and not doing this. And there can be that sense of what you were saying was like the human doing instead of the human being. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, and operating out of that fear. And so you, you also said something that was so brilliant where it was like, you're creating that culture. And again, for the stay at home mom who you're creating a culture for your kids. And so what you realize in kind of that idea of being a boss right. was like, oh, I actually, I need to change the way I've been running mm-hmm. things. And I'm teaching those around me. I'm teaching them how to treat me and how they maybe can run their own lives. And I felt that even in my own journey to go from the overworking mm-hmm. to embracing and cultivating rest. I was like, this is one of the best things I can do for my kids, for them to see me yeah reading a book absolutely, and stopping and not being like this. Um, I often felt like I was the, the boss driving everybody and saying, this is, we need to be more productive. Right. Um, so then I want to know from you, how do you currently cultivate rest? Cause I think one of the things with what you're saying here is that we, for a lot of us, even if we're not the three on the Enneagram, which is, um, you know, kind of being really productive For a lot of us, we do find our sense of identity in um, what we do. And so we can have that inner drive to like continue to produce or maybe we don't feel value. So how do you be able to stop and rest? Like how have you learned to cultivate that? Yeah, well, I think 101 is, I mean, you tapped into something really interesting with the mother and child relationship. Children don't do what you do. They be what you be. So we can say, don't do that. Don't smoke cigarettes. And here mom is smoking cigarettes or don't say that word here. Mom is saying that word. We learn not by the doing, but by the being and boundaries. 101 says we teach people how to treat ourselves. We, we teach people how to treat us. And I, it's my responsibility to teach myself how I want to be treated. That's no one else's responsibility. If I don't treat myself well, I am then creating a foundation for this then is how other people are allowed to treat me. 
And so I think going back to, wow, what is, what is the boundary? What are the boundaries that I want? What are the boundaries that I want to have? What's, what is the lifestyle that I want to have? So from there, it was just getting practical. So for me, I realized I want to work 40 hours a week. Some people might be like, I can only work 20 or I'm going to work 50. Whatever that is, I realize I'm going to work 40 hours a week. I'm not going to work more than that. I might work less than that, but no more than 40 hours a week. And I want to keep normal office hours. So I'm doing 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. And I'm having an hour lunch break. So then, you know, family members calling you or friends calling you all day long because, oh, you're just a quote unquote stay at home mom or, oh, you work from home. So you can just eternally chat whenever your friends want to. Nope. Sorry. I'm in business hour. I have my business hours right now. If you want, we could schedule a chat during one of my lunch breaks this week. And so I scheduled like a nine to six lifestyle for myself for work and keep that as much as I can. And so I get up in the morning since I don't really have a commute. It's just, you know, from my bed to my office. I know, you know what? I'm a better human when I have at least an hour to get up and get dressed, spend time with God, have food, coffee, wake up before I sit down on my desk. So for the first hour and last hour of my day, it's no email, no social media. And that first hour is dedicated to getting up, having food, spending time with God. Then I start my day. And then when my day is done, my day's done. I don't need to send an email at midnight and I want to protect that for myself. I want to model that for my team. And I think it's also so important to have rhythms of rest in our life. You asked, you know, how do I create rest in my life? I schedule it. I live in New York city, which is a crazy city to live in. And there's a million and one things to do at all times. And so some people live in places where it's like, man, if I had one social thing a month, that's a big thing. And in New York, I schedule nights in every week. So I have at least two nights in a week where it's like a date with myself or just a time of rest, no plans. I do that every week. And then every week I also take, I practice Sabbath. So I take a full 24 hours of work off. So no emails, no social media. Although during quarantine, I'm just gonna be real. Like on my day off, I'm still been scrolling through Instagram and TikTok. Um, But having that weekly rhythm of rest and then quarterly having a weekend, um, one weekend and a quarter where I'm away, whether that's, that's could be a stay at homecation, just something where I'm not doing anything work related and it's all about resting. And you can do that on a total budget. It can be like, I'm going to go on a walk today and do a workout class and just journal and read in a park. And then uh, scheduling two weeks a year where I'm going on a vacation, whether that again is local, something where we have to plan our rest. Our rest isn't going to plan us. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we want to work for the long term and if we want to be productive for the long term, we have to give ourselves time to recover and rejuvenate. It's, it's like being an athlete. You can't work out seven days a week, 365 days a year. Part of gaining strength as an athlete is having those 
periods of time of rest where the fascia recovers, where the lactic acid releases, where we, our muscles are being torn when we, when we work out and they need to be rebuilt. And so really just taking rest just as seriously as we're taking our productivity at work. If you want to see your productivity skyrocket, start resting on a weekly basis. Preach it. Okay. So <laughs> I love this because this took this took us a long time to figure out, my husband and I, in both of our um, careers and our lives. And I think it's um, we can often wear that idea of like productivity or busyness or even mm. exhaustion as a badge of honor. Like, I'm so tired. And I know I lived that way for such a long time. And I, I think, again, it was tied to me trying to prove my value or my worth. And exactly what you said is what I try to tell people all the time, that when you rest well, you are going to be surprised at how productive you will actually be because you're working from a place of rest. You're not working mm -hmm. for rest. And so I think if people can figure out somehow what you said there, again, is it's very simple, but it's profound. It is that we need to plan for our rest. No one is planning for our rest for us. We need to schedule it in. And so both the weekly rhythm and then what are our yearly rhythms so the same thing um, I told I agree with as well we need to get away seasonally so even if it's at home we can still get away um, this idea of almost like an extended Sabbath a time to mm -hmm. just say hey I'm unplugging I am connecting with God I'm mm -hmm. looking at maybe what the last few months have been doing to me? Is this what I really want to be going forward in? Like it gives us a chance to reset all of those things. So I love what you shared. Mm -hmm. I love that you shared a lot about how to create boundaries when it comes to um, everything technology. So email, our phone, um, all of those things. And so you're really, you have been practicing teaching people how to treat you. Now I want to shift gears a little bit because I want to talk about very practically um, how we teach people how to treat us, even when it comes to relationships. And I know this is something you're really passionate about. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to dating and um, all of that stuff, can you tell me what are some ways you are teaching people how to treat you when it comes to dating? Oh man, there is, talk about a can of worms. Do you have seven more hours? Yeah, this is going to exactly. be the longest podcast episode ever. Um, so I think a few things, one, especially in Christian and religious circles, we have this idea as women that we want to be pursued and that men should be the initiators. And so in that, what happens is this like passivity of, well, he should passivity. And then also the guy that we're with should be mind readers. So right. he should know where I want to go. If he doesn't pursue me the exact way I want to pursue me, then we've blacklisted him. And then I think often so many women, myself included, have gotten into these confusing friendship dynamics with guys. Like, was this a date? Are we just friends? Why do I feel like I'm eternally stuck in the ambiguous zone of like friend zone? And I think as women, we have we have released our agency and autonomy in this like weird spiritual language of wanting to be pursued. And I, of course, do I want to be pursued? Heck yes. However, we see a accounts of wildly risk-taking and initiative women all throughout the Bible. We have the orphan who turned into a queen, Esther, who with her authority and influence stopped the genocide of the Jewish people. We see Ruth 
proposing to Boaz in the right. Old Testament, which is provocative and scandalous. And so I'm not saying that women should be initiating everything. However, I think how we teach people how, what our boundaries are and what we want and what we need is by communicating to them yeah. what those things are. For example, if I am in a confusing situation with a guy and I don't know if this is a date or not, I have the permission to clarify that and right. say, Hey, and also lead with vulnerability. I think leading with vulnerability is so important because there's a couple ways that that conversation can go down. And here's how it goes down in the majority of times. Okay. Hey, so I feel like you're being confusing towards me. What's going on here? So instantly I'm putting the guy on the defense. Like hmm. he's doing something wrong. He's made the mistake. He's not being clear when really it takes two people to tango, right? Yeah. There's two people in any given relationship. And also I am asking for clarity and asking for vulnerability without being vulnerable myself. Hmm. So I think another way we could approach that same conversation is saying like, Hey, I've been really enjoying hanging out with you. You're a babe. I think you are cute and I have a crush on you. And I just want to make sure we're on the same page. And I wanted to see um, where you were at with things. I didn't know if this was a friend thing or if this was a date thing. So I don't really like ambiguous friendship situations. So I thought we might as well just clear the air. Um, you can, that is the same, you know, conversation, but it's, it's coming from a place of, first of all, lighthearted dating is a curb, not a cliff. Like right. we put so much pressure on dating. I feel like it's no wonder guys are so adverse to asking women out these days. We're like, well, are you going to marry me on the first date? Well, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. How am I supposed to know? I don't know you. So I think as women getting to own our voices and be able to communicate from a place of vulnerability as opposed to putting a demand on the other right. person is so helpful because, well, so one of my guy friends recently, he was like, listen, men want to please women. Men yeah. don't want to make, you know, a fool of themselves on a date. They want to take girls on dates. They want to kiss girls the way they want to be kissed. They want to hold their hands the way they want to be held but all women are different. Right. So we need you to give us your playbook. Yeah. And so I think women are afraid to do that because we're afraid of being too much. We're afraid of not being enough. We're afraid of somehow taking the quote unquote reins of the relationship. Whereas like a, a, a relationship, I would say a biblical relationship is one that is mutually reciprocal, where there's mutual honesty and love and respect. And the only way we can do that is by being honest and learning how to communicate. Well, I love what you shared there. Cause I think for me, if I backtrack and think, okay, I'm hanging out with this guy and, um, what you just shared there about defining the relationship, I wouldn't do it. Cause I would say, well, what if, what if he says no? What if he rejects me? And I think you have to almost flip it and say, great. Then you don't have to waste your time with him anymore. It, do you know what I mean? Like Absolutely. You have a very clearly defined relationship. So I think sometimes with our fears, we almost have to say, let's follow that trail in our mind of Absolutely. why we're not doing something. And let's realize that the thing that's holding us back maybe isn't, um, we're not viewing it in the yeah. right way, right? Like I think for me, often the reason I don't go forward in various aspects of my life 
is that I'm afraid of rejection or of not working out. And you don't realize actually how freeing that can be. And I, the other thing I want to say is what you pointed out is being able to ask questions of somebody without putting them on the defensive is a lifelong skill, whether it is with family, with friendships. I've Mm -hmm. had to learn that in my marriage. Um, And the more you can really start off something well in being able to have great communication, I would say the number one strength um, of my marriage is we started off with terrible communication skills and we really worked on those hard Mm -hmm. in the beginning to not fall into our own patterns or habits of Mm -hmm. whether it's accusing or shutting down or any of those things but saying hey how do we communicate well no one is a mind reader right right. like I have Mother's Day coming up and I don't expect anybody to do anything for me that I haven't clearly communicated I Mm -hmm. need to communicate things well that's right Um, and I think you know rejection is is actually such a gift I am so grateful for every guy who has rejected me, ghosted me, said they didn't like me because it's through them that I have learned. It's through them that insecurities have been exposed. When I am afraid of being rejected and so I just accept scraps of a relationship. Mm. So it's like I'm what I'm telling myself is I'm not worthy of the whole thing. I don't think that I'm worthy of having the type of relationship I want. How do I know that? Because I'm willing to settle for something significantly less than what I truly want. And I'm sitting here trying to convince this person to like me. Why would I want to date or marry a person that doesn't like me? Like, no, I, I got a DM from a girl last week and she said, you know, I've been hanging out with this guy. He's awesome. We're both Christians and we have so much fun together, but I don't know if he likes me or not that way. I can't tell if we're dating. I don't want to bring it up because if he says that he doesn't like me, then I think I would still just rather have this friendship than nothing at all. And I'm like, first of all, I've said that a thousand times with a hundred different guys of, no, I'm totally fine just being friends when really I wanted something more. And, you know, when we, don't confront a situation. First of all, if you want to be open to love, if you want to be open to an emotionally available man, you have to be emotionally available yourself. And as long as we play this game of I'm fine with settling for the scraps, I'm fine with being in this confusing position with this guy friend, then you are blocking yourself from potentially the person that God could have for you who is ready, who is open to love. 100%. You know, I, um, it reminds me again of my own love story. And when I connected with my husband, um, I had actually, I was in another relationship. Um, but the main thing that happened, the main difference that, um, moved me from the other relationship I was in, which again, he was a great guy, but I know in my heart would have been uh, kind of settling, right? Like I, I don't, I know looking back at that time, he really didn't love me as much as I wanted. And he really didn't love God. And I, I did these things to, um, try and hold on to the relationship. Mm-hmm. And I was holding on so tightly, like my fists are bald. I was holding on so tightly. It was the moment when I opened my hands and I said, God, here's this relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm giving it to you that was the moment that really that relationship ended and the relationship with my husband began, which is interesting because I had known my husband for years, but I was not attracted to him. He Mm -hmm. knows this story. 
it was like God opened both of our eyes at the exact same time because I opened my hands and I said, and God brought that thing to me that was the, I believe, the best thing for me, right? Like it was, Mm. I've heard you say that idea of like not holding out for the, or not, um, not settling for the good when it could be the great, Mm -hmm. right? And just kind of saying, here you go, God. And I think that's what we, that is a practice I have to still do in my life. I have to hold everything in my life open with these open hands. And so, you know, that again would be my encouragement. I know that's one thing you encourage women in as well is um, to know that you are worthy, right? The way you are um, allowing people to treat you, um, is showing something. So it's okay to stop and say, Hey, this, whatever is going on in this relationship isn't okay. Like I am, Mm -hmm. I am a child of God. I am worth more. And if it Mm -hmm. means letting go of this relationship, that's okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, it, it doesn't mean something's going to pop into our hand That's right. in that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that you're writing a book right now. Ah, makes one of us. (laughs) I love that I'm going to get to read your book. Can you tell me a little bit about that book? Oh, I sure can. Um, So I'm writing a book called Sexless in the City. Uh, Sometimes sassy, sometimes painful, always honest look at singleness, desire, and sex. And really, well, that was like a mouthful. I think that's like the first time I said like the title and subtitle correctly. Love it. Um, Essentially, it's about my story. I grew up in the South and during the purity movement, I was taught good Christian girls don't have sex. And that was all fine and dandy because I hardly ever dated. And all of that really changed for me when I moved to New York City about seven years ago. And I dated more in one year than I had in a decade. I fell in love. I was having a hard time keeping my clothes on. And kind of got to this crossroads of is like waiting until marriage to have sex still a thing because it seems like everyone else around me is doing it is it just this antiquated christian norm that's no longer relevant what's god's heart for sex and sexuality and desire and relationships outside of the set of rules i was given as a young person and to be frank rules were no longer keeping my clothes on and so i went on this journey of researching every single verse in the bible that talked about sex and sexuality thinking that i would find a very justifiable way to move forward in my relationships as a Christian woman and having sex outside of marriage. And the joke was on me. (laughs) I, you know, walked away from that journey, actually more conservative than when I started. But what I discovered was uh, such a compelling vision for relationships and intimacy Mm -hmm. that I actually am so shocked that Christian culture hides behind these rules when it comes to dating and physical boundaries. When we have this incredible, compelling love story, like woven throughout the Bible from, you know, Adam and Eve to Song of Solomon. It was like one of the most provocative erotic books in the Bible that like Jewish kids weren't allowed to read it until they came of age. And so I kind of go through my own story, my own heartaches and fumbles and failures in dating, and also really challenge these norms and scripts that we were given in Christian culture that really are 
shame inducing and crippling and then end in just really trying to cast a new biblical vision for how do I actually walk out singleness in a modern culture? What does it actually look like? Like how can we practically get into this? Not just theory, but how to walk it out. So my hope is that it really is a resource for women and men to really be equipped to navigating that journey for themselves about what do they think about sex? What do, here's what the Bible says. Now, what decision do they want to make and how do we, how do we walk this out in today's, in today's society? So, well, what would you say to the person who's like, okay, I've heard that God said not to have sex before marriage. And obviously it means like God hates sex and like, He's just cruel. Why has he done that? Like, what could you say to the person who's like, I just don't get, I don't get why. What's God's view on sex? Yeah, I would say I totally understand. And I, that's where I was for a long time in my life. And if what I know about God is true, then the God of the Bible is so concerned about our hearts. Hmm. And so if there's any invitation on anything, whether it's our sexuality um, or like don't gossip, don't murder. It's probably not because God is this cosmic killjoy, but because like God is for our flourishing and for the restoration of humanity. And if we're talking about sex and desire, God created it. Genesis one says God created man and woman in his image and in his likeness. And he called humanity very good. Now that doesn't mean just my mind or my fingers or my spirituality. It also means my reproductive organs. It means that when I get turned on, God's not like, ah, system malfunction. What's happening? He's like, this is what I created. I created your body to respond in this way. Getting turned on and being attracted to someone is so natural. God made our bodies and God created sex. If you, I have a hard time understanding how any Christian could ever say that God is against sex. If they have read the book of song of Solomon, I mean, they're talking about everything. They're, they're talking about getting drunk and love off each other's bodies. And I'm like, is that where Beyonce came up with her song? They're, they're talking about they're talking about intercourse. They're talking about foreplay. They're talking about oral sex. Like it is nitty gritty stuff. And then we see Ephesians five, which for a long time, I always felt was this like curse on women to eternally be submitted and less than their husbands. But really when we do a deep dive into these texts, it's not necessarily about these gender roles, but about a radical kind of love, a radical kind of love that says, I choose you. I see you. I honor you. And the sex and physical intimacy becomes this manifestation of this spiritual, emotional, mental, physical um, commitment to each other. And so I think there's so much that we're missing Hmm. when we just say God doesn't like sex or only like good Christians don't have sex until marriage. I'm just like, So, so "Ah!" (laughs) so with your deep dive of looking into this, we can see, okay, God created sex. God created us as sexual beings. God loves sex. But obviously our culture in many ways has distorted that, perverted that. And so um, we can have a little bit of a um, confusion towards it or this understanding of like, I'm I'm just going to either I'm just going to do it anyways because I'm following my feelings or I can have this idea of like, what if I wait to get married and then it's 
bad sex or Mm -hmm. all of those things. Like for the Christian person who's listening, who's like, this is a real struggle for me. Um, Because I think it is for everyone who is dating and who is trying to figure out, okay, God, like, I know you set up this boundary. I maybe don't really know why. Mm -hmm. Um, Why do you think God would give that as a boundary then in marriage? I would say, well, for the, so for the, your first question of, for the person who's like, I don't understand the why I would say then go on a journey, Mm -hmm. like, like, don't take my word for it. Like read the Bible, ask hard questions. If God is real, then God is not threatened or intimidated or offended by your doubts, Mm -hmm. by you questioning the why behind things. God wants your heart. He doesn't want your behavior modification. Like Jesus says, you know, there are people who do all the right things, but their hearts are actually really, really far from me. And so I actually think there's so much permission for us to really figure out not what do my parents believe about sex? What does my pastor believe about sexuality? But what do I believe? And when I collide with the creator of the universe. When I dig through the scriptures, what's the story that I find? And I think if we need to empower people to start there, I think we're so scared of people having sex that we, we create so much shame or we've been given such shame narratives around sex and desire and our sexuality. When I think what we really need to do is invite people into going on their own journey for themselves and so, so there's that is don't be afraid to go on the journey. Don't be afraid to ask the hard questions. Um, it might take you on a journey that you um, are not expecting, i.e. seven years later, here I am writing a book and I've read probably a hundred different books on the topic. I'm constantly reading about sex and sexuality and all the things. Um, and your second question, why do I think God would make that a rule? Yeah, like why has God created that as a boundary to have, to keep sex within marriage? I mean, that is a really, really hard question to answer in, a, in, a, in the short amount of time that we have. I think there's a lot of nuance there. Um, the most compelling thing for me that I found was reading the Genesis 1 and 2 account with Adam and Eve. And they're sort of the biblical precedence of a married couple, right? So Adam is created, God breathes the breath of life into his lungs and says it's not good for man to be alone, but then he lets Adam stay alone and work. And sometimes I wonder if God did that so that humans could know work is important, but it's not your everything. And it's also okay to still want more. And then God puts Adam to sleep and starts creating woman. And notice also in scripture that Adam doesn't see Eve until God awakens Adam to him. So kind of how you said, you know, you and your husband didn't see each other and God had to awaken something in you. So I think praying for our spouse that God would awaken our hearts for one another. But when God awakens Adam to Eve, his first response is to burst into like song and poetry. And he's shouting, Oh my gosh, at last, at last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. His response to this woman was honor and dignity and whoa, I can't believe that I've met this person. And then Genesis two says, you know, for this reason, um, a man shall leave his home, like the whole leave and cleave 
leave their families, build a life together. And it says, and then the two will become one flesh. So the precedence from day one is that sex happens after marriage. And so I looked into the cultural context there. And the reality is today we leave home when we graduate high school, when we go to college, I'm 35. I counted the other day. I've had almost a hundred roommates since I graduated high school. And so it's not really much of a thing for us as, as opposed to like maybe just a minor rite of passage when we graduate high school. But in Hebrew culture, you left home once and everyone in your life knew about it. When you left home, it was become because some Hebrew boy came to your parents' house in front of your whole family, in front of you, and proposed marriage to you. And that was agreed upon. You either said yes or no. And the marriage, the wedding didn't happen until that boy went back and built you a house. So then he had to go back to his house, his family's house, and add on a whole other a whole other home to the family unit. It was typically typically at the man's house because of the family business. And so every day for however long it takes to build a house, it's not like reality TV today where it's like, it's done in a week, brick by brick, day after day, he is showing through his actions, through his time, even through his finances and his willingness to sacrifice that he's a one woman kind of guy and he's willing to do whatever it takes to show this woman that he's serious about her. So no late night text, hey, are you up? Or no, hey, let's hang out. And what is this, a date or not? No, he is showing everyone in his family the town. So then all the other women know, oh, this guy's off the market because he's serious about this girl. So from the, from day one of the relationship, there's honor, there's integrity. There's a, there's a sense of like nobility happening here. And then when the house is done, then they get married. And then after they get married, then they have sex. And I don't know if it was just the time of life when I read this, when I was in the midst of online dating and meeting guys at bars and making out with random guys and realizing, wow, I want a Genesis 2 type of love. Hmm. And I wonder if there's something significant about waiting and saying no to something really, really good for the sake of a greater vision with this other person. Cause when you say no to something good, it strengthens a muscle of integrity inside of you and muscle of discipline. And so when I go back to that Genesis two account, I just see this really compelling sort of relationship. One that is outward focused, one that is gosh, inspiring. And when I read Genesis two, I'm like, we should have movies made out about this type of love. And so I can't really under answer the question for sure. So why is sex just for marriage? But when I see it in its context from Genesis 2, and then we see it again in Song of Solomon, this husband and wife duo that are just, there's this safety, there's this trust, there's this freedom in their sexual relationship because no one's going anywhere. When you're all in, there's so much freedom and safety there. So I think in that sense, it's like, man, 
if I, I want that type of relationship. And if that means me saying no to sex and some physical intimacy before I'm married, like I am so okay with that. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of where I got to on, on the whole sex thing. I could talk way more about it, but, <laughs> but we're going to have to wait to read about it. In yeah. Um, I love what you just shared there at the end. And I think it actually applies to so many areas of our life in that when we have a boundary in place, it actually provides freedom, right? So even mm-hmm. the boundary of, I only check my email from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m., like that actually mm-hmm. frees us up in so many other ways. Um, we have boundaries for how we teach people how to treat us. Like this is how, I'm when I'm going to respond to a message from a guy, this is mm-hmm. how I'm going to, um, you know, I know for myself growing up as a Christian girl, unsure of all of the boundaries exactly, but I was like, I know... Um, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose this relationship, but I know that I have this boundary, right? Like I've, mm-hmm. I know I don't. And so I used to say to the guys and not every guy I dated when I was in high school was a Christian, but I remember saying, um, just so you know, like we're not going to have sex or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and again, it was from that place of fear. I'm going to lose this. Um, mm-hmm. it, I, interestingly, that never happened. Um, a lot of the guys respected those boundaries, mm-hmm. um, But again, what you're saying is what we have to sometimes flip in our mind is that idea of like, I'm actually worth a lot. I'm worth holding out for the best guy um, that God has for me. And so I actually want to treat myself with that same respect. And I love you've even shared, I know we can't go into everything, but this idea of taking yourself on a date and um, treating yourself well. And so what does it look like for us to first treat ourselves well. And then again, how do we be, um, kind of almost like creating those boundaries before we even need them? Like saying, Hey, these are the things that I know God wants for me. And I love the encouragement to deep dive into his word and, um, not to be afraid of, you know, what's there. But, um, the last thing I want to say, cause I do want to uh, wrap this up with you. You're in the middle of writing a book. Mm-hmm. Um, is it for anybody listening? If you feel like, man, I'm, I'm listening and I, I'm sad that I feel like I've, I've screwed up or I've gone too far or I've, you know, any of those kind of things. That is not what this episode is about. That is not, um, God's desire ever. He's never, um, bringing shame into your life. And so what, is there anything you would say to that woman who's feeling like I want to change course a bit, but I'm also kind of just feeling that sense of loss or regret from things that I've done. I mean, first I would say is that shame has no right in your story. The destiny that God has for you is one of freedom, not regret or fear. And man, like, haven't we all made decisions that were like, man, I mean, whatever it is. And that doesn't define who you are. And also, I, I mean, for me, I've, I've made good decisions. I've made wildly poor decisions over and over and over and over again. I still make poor decisions. <laughs> and guess what? Like what you do or do not do sexually does not get you in or out of heaven. <laughs> like mm-hmm. gospel is Jesus alone, grace alone. The thief on the cross next to Jesus who was dying next to him when he was like, Jesus, like, you know, save me. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in heaven. He wasn't like, well, but 
what'd you do? Like, did you murder anyone? Were you having sex and not married? No, it was, it was grace, grace, grace. And what I love about Jesus is he always leads with dignity, acceptance, kindness, and relationship. Mm -hmm. And so if there is shame from your past, like first, I just want to say that shame is not yours to carry. Mm -hmm. It is not yours to carry. And guess what? You're probably going to make another mistake. Okay. And Every opportunity is an opportunity to grow if we choose it to be. And God's invitation for us is not a life of perfection, but a life where our heart is connected to his. And so I think what that means for me is growth isn't about achieving this, like, let me be perfect. Let me do all the good things. Growth is the moment where I realize I've gone off course and I make the choice to get back in alignment with my heart. Wow. And so well, I think we, yeah, I think that's, that's what I would say to, to well, that girl. <laughs> well, let's leave it there. Cause I think, I hope people go back and listen to that last thing you just said, cause you're right. The growth is that saying, Hey, th- I'm not walking where I want to walk or I'm, I'm out of alignment with God. I just want to get back there. I'm going to do whatever it takes to mm-hmm. get back there. And we all continue to make mistakes. Peter is one of my favorite people in the Bible. Cause I'm like, he's screwing up left, right and center, oh, Totally, you know? And sometimes we can get this idea of like, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. And it's like, what, how can you, um, your standards are higher than, than mm-hmm. God's standards, right? Like he's, mm-hmm. he's offering us grace. And so take those words that Kat said to heart and, um, understand that God's God's words to you are always going to be those words of love and truth. And they're not going to be words of condemnation. Um, Kat, I know you and I could talk for like hours. And for yeah. some reason, we keep, we keep getting kicked off this call. <laughs> thank you for hanging in there with me. And where can people find more of you? Yeah. So I'm therefinedwoman.com. That's where my blog lives. Podcast is on there as well. My podcast is also on iTunes, Spotify, all the things. And that's called The Refined Collective. Instagram is the refined woman. And if you are single listening to this and you're like, okay, I feel like I have a gazillion more questions. Um, go to bit.ly that's B I T dot L Y slash T R W dating tips. And you can snag my free resource guide for single women and join the amazing community of single women that I do life with on a weekly basis over in the refined woman. So amazing. And do you have a really release date for your book? Yes, it's April 2021. Ooh, woo, so okay. yeah, so we got we've got about a year to go. So it's we have a minute. So I would say in that if you're like, Oh my gosh, I want to learn more about this stuff. Grab my resource guide, you'll get in my, into my email system and you are going to be the first to know when this book comes out. So amazing. Thank you for joining me today, Kat. Such a pleasure oh, thanks to talk for to having you. Me. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for listening today. I really am so encouraged knowing how many of you are being encouraged by this message. And if you have found it helpful, would you mind just sharing it with a friend, leaving five stars or even a review wherever you listen to podcasts, podcasts, keeping it super professional. Um, If you want to connect more with me, head over to Instagram where I'm at Jacqueline.Widener. Or if you want some free resources, head over to my website at JacquelineWidener.com. This has been an Extend Network production.